Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Thursday, November 23rd. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor, along with my colleagues, John Elmer and Ali Abonima. Today, we're focusing on the deal to exchange captives for a four-day pause in fighting and what will be or should be involved in this pause. We're also going to be talking about Palestinian prisoners and what could come next for Gaza. Hamas said that the deal was reached after difficult negotiations mediated tirelessly by Qatar and Egypt and would allow the distribution of humanitarian aid, including fuel, to all areas of the Gaza Strip. The deal would include the release of 50 women and children in Hamas custody in exchange for, for 150 Palestinian women and children in Israeli prison, the resistance group said. The exchange is set to begin on Friday morning local Palestine time and continue for four days. Meanwhile, Israel has continued to bomb the Gaza Strip and Israeli soldiers kidnapped the head of Al-Shifa Hospital, Mohammed Abu Salmiya. He was transferred to the Israeli Securities Authority for questioning following, quote, evidence showing that the hospital under his direct management served as a Hamas command and control center, according to the Israelis. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza announced just hours ago that it will stop coordinating with the World Health Organization in hospital evacuations after it failed to intervene in the protection of Abu Salmiya and Al-Shifa Hospital, which has been under direct Israeli military occupation for more than a week. Israeli forces also arrested Awni Khatab, the head of Khan Yunus Medical Center, According to the Palestine Red Crescent Society, Israeli forces arrested him and now his whereabouts are unknown. The kidnapping took place yesterday, yesterday while the convoy of wounded patients from Al-Shifa Hospital was traveling through the new Israeli checkpoint that separates northern and southern Gaza. Let's turn to our discussion now on the agreement and what it will look like beginning tomorrow. As I said, Israel has agreed to release 150 Palestinian women and children prisoners in exchange for 50 Israelis in Hamas custody. Let's talk about the deal and what we know. Uh, Ali, what do you make of this? Where where are we? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, this deal, as it's been described as something that Israel could have had uh, six or seven weeks ago, uh, right at the start, Hamas said that they had no interest in holding on to these civilians. And uh, it was probably more of a uh, burden to them to have to try to keep them safe in Gaza under the uh, horrifying conditions and the relentless Israeli bombardment. And they'd said clearly and repeatedly, you know, six, seven weeks ago when this all started, that we'd like to release them as soon as we could. And in fact, recall that uh, Hamas released uh, four uh, of the detainees in Gaza. Uh, first, uh, I believe it was a mother and a daughter, and then it was two elderly women and they even said at the time that Israel refused to receive them so they but they released the two older women anyway uh, via the Egyptian uh, red cross now of course the tragedy for the families of the israelis and other uh, civilians who are in gaza is that according to hamas dozens of them have been killed in israeli bombing so those are people who will never go back to their families. And had Israel 
accepted what Hamas said earlier on, perhaps dozens of people who were killed by Israeli bombing, who would now be getting ready to go home to their families. So that's the first thing to say. The, the second thing is that Israel had said that they weren't going to negotiate. They had refused to agree to any sort of uh, so-called pauses, humanitarian pauses. I think at one point they were talking about a meaningless arrangement where they would uh, pause for a few hours, four hours or something, uh, in order to allow for the uh, detainees to be freed. And Hamas said that that would be meaningless because there's no way to safely organize the release with a pause of four hours. So I think the key, I, th I think this starts to look something like an Israeli climb down. Now, I want to be cautious about that because it's not as if Israel is acknowledging that it's been defeated in this war, but certainly it is a climb down from some of the positions it has been taking. I think a third point I would indicate is that the Israelis are trying to present this uh, deal as a uh, kind of a military achievement. They're saying that everything we've done militarily is what made this deal possible, when in reality, uh, that is not the case. It is, uh, as, as I said, it's something Hamas had offered from the very beginning. So I think that gives us an indication that the Israelis understand that they really don't have any achievements to show for all the barbarism and murder and genocide they're committing. They don't have any military achievements. So they're trying to present this deal as an achievement of their attack on Gaza when it is no such thing. Now, uh, we can get more into that, but the, the point I want to end with, uh, and it's certainly last but not least, because the most important thing, in a sense, is what does this mean for people in Gaza? And since the reports that a deal has been reached, uh, since those reports came out uh, days or so, I've been messaging uh, many of our friends and contacts in Gaza, those that we can reach, asking people, what do you think? What do you make of this? And uh, it's interesting that I've been getting pretty similar reactions from people. They sort of fall into a couple of broad categories. And one is that uh, pretty much everyone says, a halt to the bombing, even for a few days, will be a relief. People want to have a moment to collect themselves, a moment to just try to reconnect with family and loved ones who may be displaced in different areas, a chance to bury their dead, a chance to look for loved ones who may be missing, trapped under rubble, maybe lying dead under rubble, but also... Uh, a sense that, as one of our uh, friends in Gaza put it to me, that it's like someone who's being tortured and the torturer pauses just to give 
their victim a sip of water before resuming the torture. That was a feeling I heard from a number of people. And also uh, a strong sense of anger and disappointment that nobody will be able to return to northern Gaza, whether it's to, to connect with uh, family who are still there or to return and check on their homes to find out if their homes are still standing or to try to uh, recover belongings that might help people survive in these dire conditions. And in fact, uh, the Israeli media this morning is reporting that they're going to uh, give troops, or they've given troops, uh, what uh, they call crowd control equipment. Uh, well, we know what Israel uses for crowd control, and that's snipers, uh, typically. Uh, that's certainly what they did with the Great March of Return in Gaza. But it may also mean these quadcopter drones that shoot tear gas, or these quadcopter drones that now have real guns attached to them that we saw being used in the last few weeks in in parts of Gaza City uh, in order to prevent people from trying to return north. So, And then I'd say that one of the main things is any sense about the possibility, and I say possibility because it hasn't started yet, but uh, any sense of relief over uh, the possibility of a a pause for four days or what even could be longer is uh, tempered by overwhelming fear of what may come next. Uh, In other words, the fear is that Israel's next focus is Khan Yunus and the south of Gaza, Khan Yunus, of course, is a major town in this in the southern half of Gaza, and it's a major town in uh, what you might call normal times. But at this point, it is absolutely full of people who have been displaced from other parts of Gaza, particularly the north. So, real fear that they may come uh, and do in Khan Yunus what they've already been doing in um, in Gaza City. Uh, So those are some of the themes I've been hearing from our our contacts in Gaza. And I'll just point out that that's very much reflected, too, in in an important uh, piece we published at the Electronic Intifada this morning by Rada Abed, Abed, who is in Gaza. And uh, the the piece that she wrote, uh, which is headlined, Let's see, it is uh, right here on my screen, or it's loading slowly. But a key point that she made, that here we go, uh, the headline there, Will Israel Observe the Truce? Because uh, as Ghada points out in this story, during a similar 72-hour truce during Israel's 2014 war on Gaza, Israel did in fact commit a massacre. So the the start of the truce has been delayed until tomorrow morning 7 a.m. local time in Gaza it hasn't started yet it's supposed to go into effect uh tomorrow uh at that time and last for 4 days at least uh, and but people in Gaza as Ghada reflects are not even confident 
that Israel will stick to what it's agreed to. And what do we know about, um, you know, it, it, there's there's this massive checkpoint or series of checkpoints now between the north and the south. There are um, these like shipping containers that the Israelis have installed that have all sorts of surveillance and like biometric data collection uh, happening. Um, and and uh, do we and and then there's like tanks and uh, battalions of Israeli soldiers in Gaza. Has there been any? information on whether or not the Israelis will uh, maintain a presence uh, right now? I mean, you know, it feels like a full-scale military occupation, even if they're not bombing from the sky for for a few days. Um, What what do we know about about the the kind of logistical uh, occupation right now? Well, what this more, John may have more detail on the military aspect, and I'll, I'll we'll, we can turn to him in a second. I'll just say that in terms of what the Qatari uh, foreign ministry announced in a press conference this morning, because the uh, Qatar served as one of the key mediators in this agreement, is that uh, the 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 truce will start, as I said, seven a.m. local time Friday, and so, so that's in about roughly 20 hours from now, if I'm, I'm reading that correctly. And it will begin with, on Friday afternoon, local time, the uh, transfer of 13 of the uh, civilians who are in Gaza. That will be the first uh, contingent. And then the, they're supposed to transfer 50 in total who will be divided into groups uh, and each and one group will be released over four days, and at the same time, there will be releases of Palestinian hostages who are held by Israel, uh, principally women and children, uh, who who are held hostage by Israel currently, will be exchanged for the detainees in Gaza. Uh, but it, there is some uh, lack of clarity about the exact mechanisms. It may be that they won't announce those in advance, uh, but that that's uh, what we understand. The other element is supposedly it's, it's supposed to be a cessation of all uh, hostile or combat activities and that the Israeli uh, military is not supposed to fly over northern Gaza uh, for a period of six hours each day, something I have a very hard time believing they will uh, adhere to. Uh, and then there is supposed to be a surge of humanitarian aid. I've heard uh, some reports saying 200 trucks a day, between 200 and 300 trucks a day, which is a lot more than is coming in now and sounds like a lot. But you have to keep in perspective that before October 7th, 500 trucks of goods were coming into Gaza a day. In addition to that, you had the supply of water and fuel. And and even though Gaza was under siege before October 7th, you were still getting a lot more supplies than we're talking about now. So the point here is even this surge of humanitarian supplies, even if it comes in, is far less than was coming in before October 7th. And there's also... 
that's in a context where there is far, far, far greater need because of the genocide Israel has been perpetrating and the starvation siege over the past uh, six weeks or so. But John, you, you may have more about some of the the question about what's going to happen on the ground with the Israeli troops there. Will they be leaving? No, essentially, I think the word that's used is freeze. So both sides freeze in the positions that they are in when the truce goes into when the truce goes into effect tomorrow uh, morning, which is actually about twelve hours from now. And so basically, um, yeah, they'll freeze in their position. So Israel will remain uh, very much in the Gaza Strip. Um, then the no flyovers is a very important point for Qassam in these negotiations because, as Nora rightly pointed out, it's a significant logistical um, task that's being asked um, and that has been accepted by Qassam in this prisoner exchange. Um, they have agreed to take possession of the captives that were taken by Gaza civilians after the Qassam Saraya al-Quds operation. Um, there, when there was breaches in the wall, there was civilians in Gaza who went across and they had people and were holding them. And to me, that was a very uh, significant wild card in these negotiations because um, they would presumably be among the first to be given back, but not being in control uh, of the Qassam brigades made that a question, an outstanding question um, at this point. So <clears throat> I think R Ali rightly said, and Gada rightly said, um, these ceasefire moments, just as they come into effect um, and the hours uh, before they come into effect are very dangerous times. Um, so uh, everybody is on maximum alert right now. Um, and as Gada pointed out from 2014, um, although I want to say that looking back to historical examples isn't all that meaningful in this particular situation because we have such an unprecedented uh, circumstance in front of us right now where we have hundreds of captives um, and a lot of um, control in these discussions that the Qassam brigades have. But in 2014, the Israelis used the ceasefire negotiations to uh, attempt to assassinate the top Qassam commanders, um, including um, Dayef, who um, they believed that they had assassinated him during the ceasefire um, negotiations with Egypt. And they killed Rayad al-Attar, who was the like number three Qassam commander, who was the commander for the southern um, division of Qassam, which in 2014 was a very important division, their most important division, because it was the division that looked after uh, the transportation of weapons and supplies from the Sinai and handled the tunnels portfolio. And Rayad al-Attar was actually in the footage of Gilad Shalit being handed over. So he was a serious operational commander that was killed um, in the most like dirty way. Um, based on, on negotiating a ceasefire in the between the two countries. And so Qassam has significant um, leadership history re re uh, regarding these deals. And we saw in the language of this um, ce particular ceasefire that Qassam, we can see it right at the top there, Qassam says the Palestinian resistance, the Qassam brigades and the, the Palestinian resistance. So Qassam is taking a leadership role in this 
and bringing the other factions to bear um, on their leadership, which is significant because the Israelis always say, you know, like we have no partner to talk to or whatever. The Qassam Brigades are actually the most legitimate partner that they could talk to in the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. They have the most popular support. They have the most entrenched leadership, um, the most accountable leadership. So a deal like this is very, um, um, I think it's very impressive. And I think we're going to talk about who gets released from prison. But I just want to note while we're talking about this, that they're releasing from Israeli prison. 150 children um and if you can imagine being one of those children in they're arrested in the middle of the night um 4 a.m uh border police dressed like soldiers kick in their doors a dozen of them stream into their bedroom grab the kid in front of his family drag him out in the middle of the night um the kids are tortured um you know save the children said they're subjected to appalling abuse um, they're often put into solitary confinement and they're not charged. They're not charged with any crime or if there is a crime, the most that it is, is throwing stones. And we they're just forced to sign confessions in Hebrew, a language that yeah. they can't read and, and they, they don't have access to attorneys. Yeah. Right, exactly. And this is such a key issue for yeah. Palestinians and, and various leaders in the resistance, resistance have said that Israel's uh, absolute refusal to re to release uh, Palestinian prisoners and indeed to continue to take many to abduct many more Palestinians, thousands more over the last few weeks. Uh, but prior to that, the number uh, prior to October seventh, the number of Palestinian Palestinians in so-called administrative detention, which sounds very benign, but the reality is it's abduction and people held indefinitely without charge or trial. The number had reached record levels mm -hmm. uh, prior to October 7th. And in addition to that, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the uh, Israeli so-called national security minister, had been imposing sadistic, sadistic conditions on Palestinian Palestinians in Israeli positions just out of just in order to uh, to satiate the bloodlust of the ultra right fascistic constituency that that he represents, which is a large part of the Israeli public. But I just want to go back to uh, to one thing, and I have a a, a question for uh, uh, John. One is to point out that. I think it's very important to note, and this is something where I think maybe we can make a comparison with 2014, is that in the run-up to this expected truce, Israel has increased its, if you can believe, because it's it's been so intense, but has actually increased its bombardment of Gaza. And we've been seeing reports of absolutely massacre after massacre after massacre in the last uh, 24, 48 hours all over Gaza, uh, including in Jabalia, there have been massacres. Uh, you know, every family is touched by this, but uh, Ahmed Abu Ful of Al-Haq, who uh, we've had on the live stream, we had him on a few uh, weeks ago. He's the international lawyer who is uh, working to try to uh, help bring Israel to account. 
uh, he announced uh, earlier on Twitter that he'd lost a number of members of his family, not for the first time, not for the first time these last few weeks. In the latest massacre in Jabalia, we've heard from uh, our contacts and writers uh, uh, in uh, Al-Maghazi camp, which is in the south central part of Gaza, again, which is supposedly the safer part, according to Israel, about really unprecedentedly intense bombardment over the last 24 hours. Uh, so th so that, that's just to point out that there is no let-up in these, this genocidal uh, massacre of Palestinians. And we saw also the horrifying images, the striking, horrifying images yesterday of Palestinians being in mass graves. Uh, again, not for the first time uh, these past few weeks, but the, the scale of the mass graves and just huge numbers of bodies uh, wrapped in blue plastic bags. And I suspect that those body bags have been brought in as part of the so-called humanitarian aid in recent weeks from Egypt. So part of the humanitarian, I mean, I don't know how you could call it humanitarian aid, appears to be just bringing in more body bags to bury Palestinian men, women, children, babies, grandmothers, grand, grand, uh, grand, and, uh, and there's no let up in that. John, I, I wanted to ask you what you know about, uh, yeah, that's the image and it's just absolutely devastating. And to think that the people who are doing this, again, the governments that are doing this, uh, are, are the ones who lecture us all the time, never again. They right. say never again, the lessons of history. But you look at these, this, this mass grave, this trench, these are Holocaust images. If we were to show this image in black and white, it would look exactly like something from the 1940s. And that is just something that is impossible to comprehend in this day and age in 2023, that this is what we're looking at. And the world knows about it. No one can say they don't know. And not only are they not stopping it, but uh, uh, the, the most powerful country in the world, the United States, and its vassal states in Europe are aiding and abetting this. Uh, it's just, just incomprehensible. And also, um, Ali, that's from a lot from Shifa Hospital as well. So it's it's yeah. a consequence of the raid on Shifa Hospital that killed uh, many people. And this is the and those a lot of those bodies were the Israelis during their siege on Shifa didn't allow those bodies to be properly handled. And so now yes. they're in the position of a mass grave based on Israel's invasion of Shifa Hospital. Yeah, and in fact, at the Indonesian hospital, which up until yesterday or the day before was the last functioning hospital in northern Gaza, I'm not sure if it's it's functioning to any extent, but it's certainly been under siege and under continuous attack and shelling. Uh, they, there are reports, again, of dozens of bodies that cannot be buried and cannot be taken out because it's under siege. And... Uh, We've seen people in the hospital talking about how their loved ones have died and and then they have to live in a room with the bodies of their loved ones for days. Yeah, preventable uh, deaths. Preventable, these preventable, are preventable, preventable deaths, deaths that you're looking deaths, at. But, but then think of the, the survivors too who, who cannot bury their loved ones and and who who have to be in a confined space 
with bodies that cannot be preserved either because there's no electricity, you know, there, there's no refrigeration. I mean, it's grim beyond belief. It's not something I like to talk about. None of us like to talk about, but this is the reality that is being imposed. Uh, I had a question for John, and then I, I thought maybe you could talk about some of the political aspects of this. Uh, or I don't know if that's something we want to talk about. Uh, uh, we, we're going to be bringing a, a guest on shortly. We might want to talk about the, the political aspects there. But um, I, I wanted to uh, ask John, uh, going back to this issue of the the so-called checkpoint or choke point that the Israeli troops have placed between north and southern Gaza. And we've seen these satellite images of people who have to pass through these uh, containers, these shipping containers, this checkpoint, where, as you said, there is this, or, or uh, we, as we heard, that there's this biometric equipment that is uh, facial recognition equipment that's been reported as. What do you think is going on there? What are the Israelis doing in your assessment, John? I mean, I think there's they're trolling they're they're trolling for fighters. I think that the the model itself looks like a lot like what the Iraq, uh, Americans used to use in Iraq when they flushed out um, towns that they were about to invade. And I think that they're it's an attempt for them to try to um, find people uh, as they're moving south. But um, what the reality of it is is that they're putting six and seven year old kids walking on a fifteen kilometer uh, march you know, with no food and water with their parents um, and then channeling them through this like cattle fence um, to take their pictures. And it's unlikely that um, they are matching that pictures with uh, already existing intelligence. My guess is that that's baseline intelligence. They're getting the names of people who are leaving. They don't have like a big clog catalog of people they're looking for. And the people they're looking for aren't walking through the biometric uh, tunnels. So it's just another um, uh, mind game that they play um, on, on people and an attempt to gain more information, which is what Israel has bragged all these years about, about how much information they have on Gaza. Gaza is the most surveilled area uh, you know, in the world. They know every phone call, every email that's sent from Gaza, yet... They didn't know 4,500 people were planning an attack to destroy their southern uh, command and completely knock out all of their surveillance equipment, which made them blind. So, I mean, there's the, a lot of the, the, the words of Israel's uh, high-tech uh, surveillance don't match the realities. They're clearly um, not striking Hamas targets. They haven't hit any senior leadership at all. Um, they're hitting people on the battlefield, basically, uh, when they get contact, when someone shoots at them, they call in uh, a fighter jet and they've been bragging on the IDF uh, channels about how they've reduced the time to six minutes from when they get hit by a Yassin to when they um, call in an airstrike. So I think those terminals are probably um, just sort of part of that third eye type um, way that Israel uh, surveils the people. But in reality... We know who's walking south. We've seen pictures yeah. of tens of thousands. It's women and children and elderly. Uh, sometimes if they're lucky on sitting on the back of a donkey cart, but for the most part, it's children walking one foot over the next. Um, uh, something that they'll remember 
for the rest of their lives, which just to throw it back to the prisoner exchange, I just want to say that the prisoner exchange is a historic achievement. And it to, to be to think about it in terms of a 10 year old kid whose house was raided, we just saw a video of it the other day in the middle of this uh, war, Israel's trashing the home of a 10 year old, his father's filming it, while 12 soldiers trash his house looking for a red t shirt that he wore when he threw stones outside of his school. Like the Israeli army comes right into their neighborhood, right into their face. And 10-year-old kids, you know, grade five, grade six, throwing stones at a tank that they're not going to find the tank. The tank is coming right to them. And Israel's arresting these kids and they don't have any charges because the charge of throwing a stone um, at a tank is clearly not a meaningful charge. They're arresting these children basically for the idea of resistance, that these 10-year-olds are already ready to be to push back against Israeli occupation. And for the Israelis, that's too much for them. So they'll arrest the 10-year-old, um, torture him, beat him with their rifle butts, um, tell them that they're never going to see their parents again, make them try to snitch on their friends um, so that they can go and do that to the, all of the other people as well. Who's the people in your classmate? Who's your classmates that throw stones? Um, this kind of behavior. And then they're locked away with no charge, no idea when they're going to get out. And one day, in the next two or three days, somebody's going to go to their prison cell and open the door and say, the Kassam Brigades just freed you from prison. <laughs> and that is a remarkable accomplishment. Kassam did not give over um, a whole bunch of their prisoners in exchange for uh, a little drop of water or a tiny bit of, uh, you know, a tiny bit of food from a food uh, delivery. Um, they were steadfast and had a principal position and have always had a principal position on prisoner exchanges that these prisoner exchanges will impact the lives of every Palestinian family. This is not a game that they're playing. It's not a diplomatic game. They're literally freeing their people who one day were in prison and the next day are going to be home in their living rooms with their families. It's a remarkable achievement. And it paused the, uh, it paused the slaughter, um, but it got, as you said rightly, Ali, it got them uh, prisoners out who were not originally part of the first deal. The first deal was Kassam saying, we'll give you the women and children back. But of course, this deal was, as we said, I remember on the first show, that the deal that ultimately happens, whether it's in six weeks, six months, or six years, it's going to look the same. The deal is going to look the same. It might even look worse for Israel the longer they wait. So they massacred, you know, now we're at tens of thousands of people massacred. More than half of the physical buildings in the Gaza Strip, in the north of the Gaza Strip, are gone. People don't have anywhere to live. Um, Hamas is stronger than it was six weeks ago. Um, and, and all uh, Israel gets for it is what they could have gotten on the first day, but they let their people sit for 60 days and a whole bunch of them like you rightly said, Ali, are killed because that makes perfect sense because everyone in Gaza City is at risk. Um, and so really, I just find it really vulgar about Israel and their massacres. And I find it just frankly impressive that Qassam is so principled 
Um, and it's not surprising to me, their leader is Yahya Sinwar, who was a founder of the Qassam Brigades, the leader of Hamas. He's the leader of Hamas now, um, politically. And so they have a Qassam founder as the political leader of the Hamas movement. And they're negotiating this prisoner exchange that Yahya Sinwar is literally the most uh, skilled, uh, experienced prison negotiator because he spent two decades as the leader of all Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, which is arguably the most important leadership position in the entire Palestinian political milieu. Um, and I, in a lot of ways, um, you, you, respected in every single house. If you talk yeah. about prisoners in every single house, you'll get 99.9% um, support, something you could never find in Chicago or Toronto. Try knocking on 100 doors and getting 100 people to agree to something. But 100 people agree to the principled prisoner exchange um, freeing these kids from jail. And I just want people to think about that when they think about those. And we watch for so many years, we've all watched those awful videos of the Israelis tearing 10, 11, 12 year old children out of their beds in their homes at four in the morning and disappearing them. And we don't see from hear from them for years. Those kids are getting out of jail. All their friends are watching them get out of jail. Um, well, it's let's it's let's remarkable. hope let's let's hope it happens. But I, yeah. I think you're right that 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 to extract that from Israel is is a major achievement. And speaking of vulgar, before before we shift the discussion, I just want to also uh, I don't know if we're going to to show it, but uh, I just want to mention it that that uh, John Kirby, the uh, White House National Security spokesperson put out a very vulgar and grotesque video uh, looking like a, many people said like a used car salesman. <laughs> now, I, I think there are probably some very decent, hardworking, honest used car salesmen who would rightly be offended by yeah. comparison to, to John Absolutely. Kirby. But uh, taking credit for this uh, temporary ceasefire deal as if the United States had done something good for Palestinians yeah. when, of course, it is the main driver of this genocide. I just wanted to point out how utterly grotesque it is. Uh, I th okay, we can we can run it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's show it. I hope we don't get banned for this. <laughs> we might get promoted. <laughs> Thanks to President Biden's personal leadership and involvement. A deal now has been struck between Israel and Hamas to release more than 50 hostages that Hamas has been holding, all women and children. And in the next day or so, we'll start to see them be re reunited with their families. This deal will also allow for a pause in the fighting for something like four days, maybe longer. We'll see. And also uh, a much needed surge of humanitarian assistance, food, water, medicine and fuel to the people of Gaza who so desperately need it. Now, there's a lot more work to be done. Even as we're glad to see these hostages get reunited with their families, we're gonna keep supporting Israel and make sure they've got the tools and capabilities they need to go after Hamas. We're gonna to continue to work on increasing and accelerating the humanitarian assistance that's going into Gaza. And of course, we're not gonna rest until we can get all the hostages back with their families where they belong. So a lot more work to do, but it's a good day today. And it's just it's just it's so grotesque. It's so grotesque because, of course, he's he's talking as if 
the disaster that has struck Palestinians in Gaza is like something that is outside the control of the United States. Yeah. And here's the United States being helpful when, of course, as we've pointed out numerous numerous times, Joe Biden could literally pick up the phone today and order an end to this if he wanted to. He doesn't want to. So that, again, is the United States using aid as a fig leaf for its <clears throat> genocidal uh, policies. I, I wanted to talk about some other videos um, that that we've been watching, um, not of disgraceful White House uh, staff, but of um, uh, resistance fighters in Gaza and what they've been able to achieve in terms of um, pushing back against uh, the US-sponsored Israeli military. Um, and I, I should say, Nora, we have been censored for showing yes, we have before. We are going to. I don't know. Did they? Did, is there like an AI, that, an artificial intelligence that's listening to what I say? So I, I have to use code. <laughs> All right. Well, we we're we're going to show one of these jelly beans now. Yes. Maybe if I use a code like that, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to talk about it, and we we're going to uh, again. We're doing this for news reporting and analysis purposes, which should be allowed. It should not be censored. Um, we're going to do it uh, and we're going to see see what happens. Uh, but we, we don't think we should have to self-censor when we're talking about news and doing analysis. So, you know, uh, we're going to call it a jelly bean instead of, a, instead of the you know, see, see if that, see if that code Perfect. gets us by. All right. Let's John, do, do you want to, do you, do you want to set up uh, these, these jelly beans and tell us what flavors? Uh, uh, sure. This was a video released yesterday that um, shows the defense of Gaza city by the Kassam brigades. And what, what we're seeing here, uh, that's the famous red triangle that has now become kind of an icon on social media. People use the red triangle now as kind of an oblique reference to this. But we're seeing here, uh, John, uh, th this is th they're using these Gaza-made Yassin 105 rocket-propelled grenades that uh, are capable of piercing armor. And... What's remarkable to me uh, looking at this video is that the eyes of the resistance seem to be everywhere. That and they just can... hopping fences in their neighborhood. They're yes. in their own neighborhood. Yeah. But they can get very close. They can observe the Israelis very closely without the Israelis apparently being aware of that. Despite their drones constantly buzzing overhead, despite all their sophisticated technology, we see that the eyes of the resistance are absolutely everywhere and uh, i believe this is still in northern gaza and this is absolutely incredible because the courage it takes to do this watch this unbelievable and that is some kind of um uh pancake that he has uh uh, uh attached to that vehicle of course I, i'm using uh, uh code here people people are gonna have to interpret what i what i'm saying but John, what can what? And that, uh, yeah, and that's uh, if we go back just a few seconds there, uh, uh, Tamara, that uh, 
that uh, sort of uh, cage on top of the tank is designed as I, it, John, isn't that to try to stop air dropped munitions? Coming yeah, it's down to defend the top turret of their of their tanks because in the urban environment, the Palestinians, you can see that that tank is completely surrounded by buildings with overwatch of that vehicle. Um, and ultimately, the longer the Israelis stay in this area, the more likely they're going to be targeted from buildings like this once the Palestinians figure out where their concentrations are and how the best way to attack them are. All but right. the proximity of that, to be able to, yeah. from that distance, and we've seen it repeatedly in this video, very, very close. The fighters are very close to the Israeli armor. And again, yeah. the Israelis are not out of their tanks. They're not defending um, the area at all. So um, the, well, the video is remarkable. If you want to yeah. go back over it again, I don't know if it's a well, risk. Well, it's and not if... finished yet, has it? So we, we should keep running it. We, we haven't quite reached the end yet. So uh, and th there you go. Now, that we don't always see the complete aftermath, John, and that's because... Uh, as I as I understand it, as you've explained before, they're not going to wait around because they're going to shoot the 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 shot they have to shoot and then get out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. And now this is remarkable because again, this is Qassam filming the Israeli soldiers from and then attacking them, uh, and we don't see, you know, this is not graphic in that sense, but. The, they they open fire here, and uh, then the 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 uh, the jelly bean comes to an end, and we we don't see what uh, what what happens uh, after that. But the assumption has to be that um, in a lot They're of cases, a lot of really, these yeah, are damaged for sure. And at the beginning, we saw the footage at the beginning of this clip. Um, it showed back to back. Yeah, if we if we show right from the beginning here, just show this first few seconds, you can see them fire from here from this position. You'll see this one guy fire and then the second guy will fire right after it. And that's highly coming up right here. And see, there's one and here comes another. So that that back-to-back -back is a tactic that they've um, started to employ because of what we talked about on the show uh, a little while ago. The protective countermeasures that the Israeli armored vehicles have um, uh, deploy when the first one hits. And the theory and the understanding is that uh, the second shot would then be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, be able to penetrate. Um, so we're seeing um, resistance tactics changing just in this video, um, just since the early um, the early stages. We've seen um, Hezbollah use that tactic with their Cornet anti-tank missiles firing three and four simultaneously um, or virtually simultaneously, um, one after another. But again, this video just shows, um, look at how close they are. That's their observational position to this in that the way and then this footage right here is incredible this and you is can a actually see that whatever that going is going to the, the back door of the armored personnel carrier and that door he's trying to he, that's a sticky that's a sticky mine 
and it blows. He's attempting to blow the door off. And it's enter actually a pancake, John. A pancake that he's trying. Yes. Well, it actually is. They're copper plated magnets um, and they're um, EFPs. So they're um, um, they can make them any way they want. They make them with a huge magnet and then it sticks to that and explodes. And the door, the idea is to get into the armored troop carrier. They're not just trying to wreck and kill um, the forces. They're actively trying to enter the vehicle and capture more prisoners. And that's no. something that the Israelis yeah. have talked about since the beginning of this war, that they've um, felt from the inside fighters pulling on the door and trying to get inside the armor. So even though they have 239 captives, and there's some talk about whether they could get all the prisoners out for that number. They're still, as a strategic imperative of the organization, trying to capture additional soldiers on the battlefield with their bare hands. It's remarkable. Yeah. Yes. And so if that, that video that's... does, if this stream does get taken down, guys, you can find, we'll post the SoundCloud on Electronic Intifada. And, and we'll we, have and some we, of these we all We will also... Uh put up the different segments separately so even if they censor the entire episode we'll still yeah. put up the different uh, segments we're, but we're committed to try to speak as freely as we we can and to push the limits now uh we also want to be uh, fair that, fair and balanced yeah. in fair our recording so to i want to be fair yeah. and balanced yeah, yeah we have Go to ahead, show Nora. the other side um so let's side. let's show these uh these videos uh, jelly beans of um the uh the israelis let's see what they and have this to... is released by the israeli army who exactly. apparently were very are very jealous of the videos that hassam is putting out so uh, they they wanted to put one out of their own. We should say that this video, it is, the footage is from the Israeli army, but someone on uh, Twitter edited edited it for, uh, added yeah. a little bit of commentary Some that I think is Annotations, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, go ahead. school yeah they're in a school really learning from the Americans but, uh, let, let's pa let's shoot. pause that for a second if we go back just slightly because uh, there is a serious side to this but go back to where we see all the soldiers in the classroom and let's count how many are in there there's at least I see four maybe there's a five or six don't see everyone in the room but there's at least I'm counting at least five people in here. If I think that's someone mm -hmm. on the far right, and there may be more, and certainly uh, the person someone holding the can yeah, camera. yeah. So that's let's say six, but there could be more. And we have seen Hassan videos where they're firing a thermobaric grenade into a building where maybe we see only the soldier because we'd be looking from the outside, only the one who's at the window. But what this video released by the Israeli army is showing us is that, that even though you see one soldier or maybe two in the window, there may actually be six, seven, eight, a dozen 
inside that room when when the Qassam fires the thermobaric grenade into here, the Israelis using a school as a military base, as they are now using hospitals as military bases. As, as the saying has become common now, every Zionist accusation is a confession. Yeah. And, uh, and, we, and we see that very clearly here. I guess let's run the rest of this. If you're taking fire, you're not standing in the window that way. So... <laughs> What what are they shooting at? And so as a regular consumer of uh, IDF videos out of professional obligation, I have watched every single video they produced in this conflict. And this is not, uh, this is common. This is actually the most combat footage they've shown. They have never shown a Palestinian in their entire six-week war. Um, usually their videos just show them blowing stuff up from a distance. Um, there was one the other day that was, um, I, I should have clipped it for this show, but um, they're driving along the road and they're shooting the shoulder of the road. You can see their bullets hitting the shoulder of the road that they're driving down. And most of their videos are just them in bulldozers pushing um, buildings that they've blown up around. So the, 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 the comparison between the two group, the fighting groups videos um, couldn't be more, couldn't be more stark. But also we see it from the Palestinian video, why the Israelis are locked in their armored vehicles and not out on the street. Uh, if they were out on the street, they would clearly be captured um, and killed from these positions. Like if you can see the tank driving by, that tank that you see driving down the street should have dismounted infantry walking beside it. And each intersection needs to be held by dismounted infantry or else people are allowed to be in buildings like that. So they're not even clearing one block in these. It shows proof that the battle for Gaza City, um, if Israel is going to maintain this, essentially we've talked about it a number of times on the show, but the primary uh, objective of the ground invasion was to attack the hospitals and then to make these videos underneath the hospitals showing a tunnel because they don't have the courage or fighting uh, acumen to actually find a tunnel that's in, 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 in use in any of these areas. They're just destroying things. They're hiding in their tanks. They're blasting away. Um, they're calling in airstrikes. And if they were outside their tanks, as we could see from that video, they would be captured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which well, they're terrified it, of. Yeah. They'd be captured if they're lucky. Right. Right. Well, uh, in a few minutes, we'll be joined by uh, a good friend of ours, Hatim uh, Abudeya from Chicago to talk about um, direct action and uh, continuing to build this massive international solidarity movement. But first, uh, we, you know, we, we wanted to get some of our colleagues from Gaza on today. Of course, the communication system is still just in shambles, um, but we we're able to get this voice message from our friend uh, Ahmed Abu Artema, um, who is a poet, a writer. Um, he was just released recently from uh, intensive care at the hospital um, where uh, he was recovering um, after his house was bombed by Israel uh, in an attack that killed his 12-year-old son. Um, so we're we're really grateful that Ahmed. Um, 
took some time to send us this voice message all the way from Gaza. Um, so, uh, so let's go to that, and then we'll bring in Hatem. Hi, friends and comrades. For about 50 days, Gaza Strip is still facing the Zionist savage war of genocide against the people in Gaza Strip. Israel is targeting everything. Israel destroyed everything. It destroyed the neighborhoods, the houses of the families. It changed the features of the cities in Gaza Strip. It targeted the mosques, the hospitals, the churches in Gaza Strip. It's clear that Israel is targeting the life itself in Gaza Strip. The Zionist problem is with the life itself, is with the Palestinian existence itself. So it's horrible that the world, the world so far didn't have enough ways to stop this Zionist genocide war in the 21st century. Sure, we deeply appreciate the protests and demonstrations of the free people everywhere. When we watch such protests, we feel that we are strong. We are not alone. But it's very important that the world after this Israeli savage barbaric war will not be the same world before this war. This war showed the new generations that the Nakba is not only a historic event. The Nakba is an Israeli continuous act. The Nakba is a constant Zionist strategy. All the aspects of the Zionist society are ready to engage in the acts of the genocide against the Palestinians when they feel that this is the moment to do this. So please, the most important thing now after this horrible Israeli genocide war that to work together to isolate this regime. All of us know that the world isolated the apartheid regime in South Africa. But what's happening in Palestine is worse and worse and worse than the apartheid in South Africa. It's our hope in Palestine to live in the regime of the apartheid in South Africa when we compare it to what's we watching now at, and what's we living now. This regime is not only a regime of apartheid. The Zionist regime is a regime of genocide, a regime of ethnical cleansing, and a regime of apartheid. So after this war and after this moment 
we should have a new movement, global movement across the world to isolate this state, to make this state is isolated, to boycott, to boycott it. It's when this state, the state of the Zionism, the state of genocide, is continuing feeling that it can murder the people, it can commit the massacres, and at the same time, it can continue uh, build relations uh, with the states freely. This means more crimes and more massacres in the future. The duty of the free people around the world to make this state and make the residents in this state know that it's not allowing for any state to continue its policies of genocide and uh, 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 crimes uh, anymore. Now we are in the 21st century and it's horrible that what's called international community is still looking at this state, the state of terrorism, uh, while it's committing these horrible crimes, war crimes, you see crimes against the humanity and do nothing, nothing. So please, this is not our own struggle. This struggle is a world struggle. Why? Because Israel doesn't face us alone. Israel is fighting us backed completely by the United States administration and by the Western governments. On the other side, we should stand in the right, in the right side of history. We should at, uh, convey our voices to the governments that we will not accept anymore for any regime is based on ethnically cleansing, on massacres to continue and to build its relations normally with the other states. We are full of faith that we will prevail we together will prevail and Palestine will be freedom, will be free. Thank you. That's our good friend Ahmed Abaratema speaking to us from Gaza just a couple hours ago. Um, and uh, yeah, at, at some point soon, we will try to have him and uh, some of our other colleagues on live with us during some of these live streams. Um, but as I said, it's really almost impossible to get uh, a good connection. Um, so we want to bring in our good friend, Hatim Abudeya, uh, joining us from Chicago. Hatim, of course, uh, is the co-founder and national chair of the US-Palestinian Community Network, USPCN. Um, he is also the co-founder and spokesperson for the Chicago Coalition for Justice in Palestine, which represents all the main Palestinian institutions in Chicagoland. And he's been leading mass mobilizations and advocacy campaigns for Palestine in the city um, for decades. Hatem, 
Thank you so much for all that you do for being with us. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're feeling right now um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the news that the, the uh, exchange deal should start uh, tomorrow? What does this mean for people in Chicago, um, members of the Palestinian community who have family who have been uh, uh, tortured in Israeli dungeons and, and imprisoned for, for years and years? What does that mean for you? Thanks, uh, Noura and, and Ali and John for, for having me on. I appreciate the invitation. Um, and, you know, I don't feel like getting censored either. So I wish I would have known you were going to show jelly beans and pancakes today. Um, oh, but, you know, we'll, we'll uh, you know, just, just to reassure you, Hatim, we have a, a good live audience now. And uh, we, we, are, uh, we, we do have a recording of this. So we'll be able to show this se segment separately on YouTube if we, if, if that happens so. sounds good inshallah yeah so um you know i think i think the um there the uspcn put out a statement yesterday a couple hours after the uh announcement of the um of the exchange and so you know i i think that um it's hard to hear the word victory or to read the word victory um when when you've buried fourteen thousand people um, almost 6,000 of them children. And when you know there are still thousands of other bodies to be buried, and, and I recognize that. Um, but, but I do think that it is a, a victory. Um, it's a victory because, you know, the, the fact is of the matter is that 150 prisoners um, are, are coming out of those dungeons. Um, and as John had mentioned, and you both had also mentioned, like, you know, that's an important um, and significant element of uh of the palestinian experience um everybody in palestinian society in the west bank and jerusalem especially um have family um who are in in prison and the opportunity that that uh they they get to walk out and go home um is is an is absolutely essential to the uh the the motivation of the national liberation movement and the point, the, the main aspect is, is that the resistance freed them. Um, you know, just like in, in previous prisoner exchanges, um, it was the resistance and the pressure from the resistance uh, that freed them. And that's why, you know, um, you know, we consider it uh, a victory. It wasn't the Palestinian Authority. In fact, you know, we know that the Palestinian Authority is responsible for making more prisoners with the security coordination that they have with the Israelis. So the people who um, criticize sometimes the armed struggle and they criticize sometimes the resistance don't recognize that it has almost, you know, um, consensus support in, in Palestinian society. And, uh, and the other thing that's really, really important to say, yeah, acknowledging that Qassam is in the leadership of the resistance, it's the strongest organization, it's the biggest organization. But this was, and we've been, we've been, trying to push this narrative from day one, especially because corporate press is always calling this a Hamas versus Israel war or Hamas versus Israel battle. We've been pressing the narrative from day one that this is truly a unified Palestinian resistance. Um, and all of the uh, political parties and all of the ideological trends and all of the social sectors of Palestinian society are part of that resistance. Um, 
you know, whether it's the 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 old PLO factions like the PFLP and the DFLP and Fatah, or now, you know, the, the Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas. Um, but it is a unified um, resistance that the uh, the communiques that we read, the one that you show, John, and the ones that we read all the time, you know, they they describe command and control centers in which the forces together are making, you know, um, consensus, democratic, collective, political, and and even and, and even military decisions. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say that this is a victory um, of resistance, and that and that you know people are also, of course, they want to figuratively and literally breathe again. And there's the opportunity to have a, a few days of, of, of respite um, and, you know, the, the 200 trucks uh, that will come in with, with the aid and, and, uh, and the fuel and the water and the electricity and the, and, and, and the food. I, I think those are important elements as well. The, the resistance had warned the United States and Israel before October 7th, for many, many, many months. And they had said, listen, if the rabid right-wing white supremacist settlers are going to continue to attack Palestinians in their villages and in neighborhoods of, of Jerusalem, and if the Israeli military and the police are going to continue to attack our holy places, our churches and our mosques in, in Jerusalem, then you know we will respond. And they said, we will respond because we are responsible for the self-defense of our people. There is nobody else that is defending the Palestinian people from these rabid right-wingers, uh, these settlers that with impunity under the cover of the Israeli military have been attacking Palestinians for months and years. And, and, they, and they warned them from, from the get-go. Um, and it was, it was ignored. So not only were they defeated on October 7th in those attacks, but they also delayed their ground entry into, into Gaza, partially because I think the preparedness of the resistance, and also, of course, because there are other regional factors in play. The Israelis probably don't feel like they can have open up two, you know, two legitimate-sized fronts, one with the, the Gazan resistance and one with uh, the Lebanese resistance in the north. And, and so, of course, Hezbollah had something to do with the fact that it took weeks and weeks for them to go into Gaza when they when they were, you know, probably planning on going within a few days of, of the airstrikes. Um, and so, de, you know, defeated on the on the military side on some level, um, you know, not able to um, to uh, um, yeah, to get uh, accomplish their public goals, you know, to destroy the resistance military capabilities, to actually, quote unquote, as Netanyahu said, eliminate the resistance, they weren't able to accomplish those goals. So so um, so what they did instead is they perpetrated um, a, a genocide like n no other we had we have seen um, in in a long, long time. Uh, and the 14,000 who have been killed and almost 6,000 children. And so that and the fact that they were allowed to do that, and as all of you have said, of course, for weeks, and all of us have said for weeks, they were allowed to do that essentially by the United States, is the reason why there was this mass upsurge in the Palestine support movement in the United States and, and across Hatem, the world. And Hatem, you know, the uh, I'm not sure 
that everyone who's watching knows the extent of those protests. Yes, we've all seen video of the mass protests, which is amazing. And as we speak, today is uh, the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States, or as, as some rightly call it uh, Genocide Day, because it, in a sense, celebrates uh, genocide of Native people uh, on this continent uh, where we're sitting. Um, and uh, But the protests that, that uh, you and your comrades have been involved in over the last uh, six, seven weeks include, for example, occupying and blockading the offices of members of Congress. Uh, I think we're, we're showing a video now. This is today in New York City where people are disrupting the traditional uh, Macy, Th Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade uh, and uh, actually forcing it to change its route and uh, essentially saying no business as usual uh, while a genocide is going on. Is that the message that you've been trying to send with the protests? And, and again, talk to us about just some of the actions that uh, people have been doing. Yeah, I appreciate that that segue. I think, um, you know, uh, it, it allows us to talk about the political contradictions within the United States as well, because I think not only has Israel been exposed um, and, and has been for a long time as the racist, white supremacist, um, apartheid, you know, Zionist state that it is, criminal state that it is, but the United States government is, is clearly now exposed. And not only is it exposed... So, Hatem, are yeah. you saying you're not going to be voting for Joe Biden? Is that, <laughs> that what I heard? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write your name in. <laughs> but you well, weren't born I, I, in the you weren't born in the states though, so you couldn't be president. Uh, oh no, I I I I was born in the states, but I don't think I can be president. Okay, uh, right. Anyway, <laughs> but if I were, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, is uh, nominate you as uh, uh, Secretary of Defense. I think sounds good. Sounds All good. Right. <laughs> um, but I I you know I I think not you know it, it exposed it. What was exposed also is this idea. And it comes from the, the, the wrong political line and the wrong political uh, analysis of the of the forces. This idea that there's an inside strategy for our community in the United States. Right. That, you know, don't don't attack the, you know, Albright and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and even Blinken. Don't attack the secretary of, uh, of state's office because, you know, we have. Arabs that work in that office and we have relationships with those folks and we could move people there. You know, one of the top advisors of Blinken is Hadi Ahmed and, and, you know, folks, when we would go after him as USPCN because of the secretary of state's policies, people would say, well, no, that's a good thing that we have him there because he's going to help us. And now and, those, and all me, of those Democrats are exposed, right? And, Every uh, single it's just, one of them. and it's not just Hatim. It's not just uh, in, you know, you're, you're talking about an insider strategy. I hadn't heard it called that before, but that's a very good term for it. Where we're told, you know, oh, incrementalism, if we get get people on the inside, if we get Arab Americans or Palestinian Americans or Muslim Americans into these positions, they can influence uh, influence from the inside. And and you're saying that 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 hasn't worked in politics and it hasn't worked in policy. But I also just want to point out that it hasn't worked in other institutions. I'll give you an example. At Columbia University, uh, 
which is one of the most prestigious universities in the United States, where there has long been censorship over Palestine and there has been a vicious uh, campaign for the last two decades against Professor Joseph Meshad, one of the most important public intellectuals uh, and uh, writers on Palestinian affairs. But they recently appointed a new president, Minush Shafiq, who is an Egyptian Muslim woman. And this was presented as some kind of breakthrough. You know, she shattered some kind of glass ceiling. She has actually imposed the most severe censorship ever at Columbia University, uh, outright banning students for justice in Palestine. Uh, So... I mean, is is that what you're talking about in yeah. terms of the insider strategy? Yeah, it is. It is, and I think I think it's important to talk about what it means. Also, in those folks who believe in that strategy, is that they are not anti-imperialists, and they see the conflict in in the in the wrong way. They have the wrong analysis. They think that like we can convince the Democratic Party and and people in power in the government here. That is, it, it is in their best interest not to support Israel the way they do, or to support the Palestinians. Instead, instead, and and that obviously is not a correct reading of history. It's not a correct reading of U.S. imperialism. The U.S. is willing to sacrifice fourteen thousand Palestinian lives. Of course, they would sacrifice ten times that many. They sacrificed and were responsible for the murder of a million in Iraq. And Albright said directly, it was worth it. Right. So Israel plays a role for the for U.S. empire there and it must remain there. And anyone who thinks, yes, the, the, the Israel lobby is strong. And you mentioned Joseph Messiah. I think it's really important to remember that he had probably the best response to the book by Mearsheimer and, and uh, Mearsheimer and, and Walt that talked about the Israel lobby. And he said they're not making an anti-imperialist analysis in this book. The Israel lobby is strong. The Zionist movement is strong. Absolutely. But the Zionists and the Israel lobby do not make foreign policy for the United States and never have. So, you know, the idea that you're going to shift the consciousness of these leaders, the political leaders, the top political leaders in this country, because they think that um, they, you know, we have a, a, a vested interest in supporting Palestinians and not supporting Israel is just an incorrect analysis. And what it means also is that then your targets are end up being the wrong targets. You want to go unite with, you know, these the, the mainstream um, of the party uh, and, and its institutions instead of uniting with the Black Liberation Movement and Chicano Liberation and Immigrant Rights and women's rights and workers' rights, which is what USPCN has as its strategy, because the 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 enemy, the, the U.S. government uh, is the enemy of those forces and those communities and those movements as well. And so going to what we take that strategy and we move it into tactics. We shut down Chica- Jan Schakowsky's office two times and, and in the last few months. And she is a member of Congress who is a longtime Chicago uh, member of Congress who is also viewed as, in the context of the Democratic Party, a progressive. But on Palestine, she is uh, extremely far right. Is that right? And, and we And we went after her specifically because she calls herself a progressive. 
specifically because she's in the Progressive Caucus, and because we said, listen, this is our strategy of of going after Jan Schakowsky is not because we want to defeat her in the in the next election. She's almost seven years old. She will never lose. You know, she's got that district sewn up no matter how much how many more terms she wants to serve. That's not the essence here. The essence is to challenge this idea that this person is a progressive on all these other issues, issues that we also care about, you know, queer rights and immigrant rights and workers' rights and all of those sort of things. But she's she cannot call herself a real progressive, and especially after October um, 8th when she came out unequivocally in support of, of the Israelis. Um, you know, excoriating the Palestinians, as, attacking as has them Bernie at Sanders, as has Bernie Sanders, as has other, Bernie Sanders, other, and a lot of other uh, folks that consider themselves progressive yeah, as well. Of, yeah, of course, Bernie Sanders, the standard bearer for what passes for progressive mainstream politics in the United States, and I think it was just on uh, just yesterday that Bernie Sanders came out with. Uh, an op-ed in the New York Times, which was, uh, you know, another 1,500 words of just fluff in which he never, the one word that does not appear in his op-ed is ceasefire. He doesn't even call for an end to the genocide, an end to the slaughter. It's It just, to me, is, is unbelievable. And, of course, look at that headline, Justice for the Palestinians and Security for Israel. Uh, it should be the other way around. It should be security for the Palestinians and bringing Israel to justice. But again, that just goes to show what the priorities are. It's always Israel first and what whatever is good for Israel. So you get all these so-called progressive or liberal Zionists who make the argument that justice for the Palestinians, what they call justice for the Palestinians, we should support it because ultimately it's good for Israel. It's good for Israel to have a two-state solution. It's good for Israel to treat Palestinians a little bit better. And and that seems to be, or do you disagree with me, Hatem, the maximum that uh, we can get from from many of these people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the essence of it, right? It's The essence of it is that they they, because of the relationship, the historic relationship between Israel and the United States because of the role that Israel plays in the in the Arab world for U.S. capital and uh, extension of its of its empire and control of resources and all that sort of thing. That's what they will always say. And the problem also in the last 45 days is that the word the words the words are dangerous when you describe the Palestinian resistance, the way it was described as, as criminal and as um, bloodthirsty and as, you know, using genocidal even, even though it was the Israelis that perpetrated the genocide, then of course what happens is that Palestinians and supporters of Palestine in the United States are, are attacked. Not only are they attacked politically at Columbia and other campuses around the country, not only are they attacked in their workplaces, people getting fired because of their pro-Palestinian stances. They're attacked in the streets. We went to a protest where we were protesting the warmongers and a, a, a Zionist fired a gun into the air and wasn't even charged. Another Zionist fired pepper spray at 15 people um, at that protest. And of course, uh, Fayumi, the, the six-year-old, the beautiful six-year-old boy is, is killed. And that's because of the language of the progressives, even the Jan Schakowsky's and the liberals like the governor of Illinois, 
um, uh, J.B. Pritzker, who said that we don't have any evidence that um, that there's uh, there's anything going on in the Palestinian community in Illinois, but we are working with our Zionist partners and with law enforcement to make sure that everybody's going to be safe. You know, immediately the dog whistle of, hey, you're not safe potentially in front of your, around your Palestinian neighbors. Hatem, I want to ask you about that because something many people are not aware of, but the Chicago and the Chicago area has the largest Palestinian community in the United States and one of the largest in the world outside of uh, Palestine or outside of the the Arab world. Um, And uh, many people know that Michigan, the state of Michigan, which is one one state over from from Illinois where Chicago is, uh, has the largest... Arab American population overall, but in terms of Palestinians, it is Chicago. And the other day, I was, you know, driving through the southwest suburbs, and you see, you drive through long stretches of of, of avenues where almost every business is a Palestinian business, and you see Jerusalem Bakery and Nablus Suites, and you know, place after place after place named after the places where people come from, and. And so I want to ask you what you're seeing. You, you of course, also work in the community. Uh, what are you seeing in the community in, ter- in, in the Chicago area in terms of what people are experiencing, what they're fearing, what the fallout of the, uh, the murder of Wadir is? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I, um, there are some people that are trying to make the comparison to September 11th, and and we lived that as well, Ali and I, in in, in the Chicagoland area. Um, and I don't think I don't think it's a it's a it's a it's an accurate uh, comparison. But I will say that there 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 was and is a lot of fear that we've uh, been been dealing with in the last 45 days. Um, we've had a ton of anecdotal evidence about how young people, children and teenagers are dealing with the challenges of discussing these issues in schools um, and not getting support from faculty and administrators. Um, we're, ta- we're hearing a ton of anecdotal evidence about people, you know, struggling in their workplaces when uh, corporations even want to put out pro-Israel, support Israel self-defense uh, statements, but won't let um, workers, um, you know, show any kind of sympathy, empathy, support for the Palestinian and, people. And on Hattem, any level. I will just note as again, we, we're both, uh, you know, in the Chicago area, we both live in, in the Chicago area, that the, the city of Chicago, I'm not just talking about private businesses and homes, but the city of Chicago put Ukrainian flags up everywhere, yep. all over the city yep. uh, back in February, and, and and including on park district property. You know, if you went to a gym or a pool or a park district facility, there would be Ukrainian flags uh, everywhere. Uh, so I'll say I, I didn't expect that they would put Palestinian flags up. I was bracing myself for the possibility that the city would have put Israeli flags up. And if that had happened, I promise you, we would have had 
more than 25,000 people out in the streets the way we did a couple of weeks ago. And, and so, you know, you asked about the, the scope of the protests. And, you know, I've been, I've been an organizer in Chicago since the second Intifada began. It was 2000. Um, and so it's coming up on 24 years. Um, and I've been in a number of massive, massive protests, whether, whether we were trying to stop the Iraq war or all of the, the, the uh, attacks on, on Gaza over the years, the attack on, on uh, Janine in 2002. Um, and we've, I'd never seen anything uh, quite like what we saw in the last 45 days. Like we, we legitimately had 25,000 at one protest, 20 at another, 15 at another, and, and they're not getting smaller. Like, I think that there's a possibility that, and I know this part of what you were asking is like, what will happen in the community potentially with this idea that there's a, there's a temporary truce and, and it might move towards something a little bit more temporary. I think we'll see a little, a bit of a wane in the protest, but you know, we, we had our, we had another action yesterday at Sean Caston's house, another congressman, um, a U.S. congressman. And this time he actually represents the Southwest suburbs that Ali was talking about a second ago, which has a ton of Palestinians as his constituents. And he's been just as bad as Shikowsky and Sanders and, and everybody else. And he won't address the idea that the Palestinians have the right to freedom, that they have been um, subjected to this vicious uh, occupation for 75 years. Um, and he just continues to talk about the right of, of Israel to defend itself and the right of Israel to genocide the Palestinian people. So, you know, there's no more talking and discussion and meetings with these folks. Like we shut down his office. He sent his staff home. We went to his house yesterday to protest there. Tomorrow we're protesting at the, at the heart of the business district in Chicago at 11 a.m. Uh, at Water Tower Park, right at the beginning of what we call the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, where all the massive shopping uh, uh, you know, district is. And, um, and so we're going to continue. Our coalition has pledged to continue to do this work because we know now that the targets are these legislators who have been unequivocally supporting uh, Israel, who are complicit in the slaughter, in the genocide, who have blood on their hands, um, and that, you know, we're going to take, uh, you know, take them to account. We have to. That's, the, that's our responsibility here. And the masses want it as well. I have one more question for, for you, Hatem. You talked already about how uh, you're working with uh, the coalition includes, and you, you see it as fundamental to work with the Black Liberation Movement and others who understand that this is a struggle against imperialism. That's very important. What, what I want to ask you about in terms of the protests in the street that are happening, that have been happening for weeks and across uh, and in downtown Chicago and other areas, we know uh, that there is incredible mobilization from the Palestinian community, from the Muslim community. They are the backbone of the protests uh, in a way. But I want to ask you, what are you seeing in terms of like broader community and mainstream community uh, uh, as a, a, a people, what do you see in terms of people coming to the protests in the streets? I think it it it, uh, it was steadily, steadily growing. The first couple protests, um, it was not very d diverse. 
it was, um, you know, vast, vast majority from our own community. Um, and, and the diversity has, has picked up definitely over the weeks. And I think it's probably, um, due to, you know, the, the, the body count, um, to, to turn a phrase there. And, um, and so when, when they recognized finally, the broader community recognized finally what this was, and they saw it as a genocide, then those, you know, political, um, the political confusion, I'll call it, that some of the people from the broader community, from outside of our community and other forces who have been with us from the beginning, um, started, started understanding what this was a little bit more and recognizing it as a genocide and now coming out when normally they, they might not have. Um, so it has increased in its diversity. The Black community, the Latino community, the Asian community, Native folks, people that have been with us and have worked with us shoulder to shoulder um, on, on, on our issue, and of course on their issues too. The USPCN across the country, in the Bay, Los Angeles, in, on the East Coast, in the Midwest, we have worked very, very closely with the movement for Black Lives ever since Michael Brown was killed in, in St. Louis. And we are part of the police accountability movement in Chicago and other cities. So, you know, we, we believe that, you know, we win our struggles um, and, and win our demands together. So those forces have always been with us, but now they're getting bigger and, um, and, and more diverse. And, and I believe that's what I mean, I think, when I spoke a few minutes ago about the, um, the fact that the, the Zionists are being exposed. And it's not just Palestinians who say, I'm not voting for Biden, right? Some of the polls are talking about, you know, youth, just, you know, your regular run-of-the-mill youth in the Democratic Party who are saying it as well, right? And, and those are the folks who I think are, are starting to recognize what Israel is, what kind of criminal apartheid state it is, and also you know, who Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the rest of the Democratic Party is as well. Yeah, Hatem, I, I wanted to uh, kind of tease that out a little bit too before we before we uh, end is like, how, how has the last six weeks um, changed the narrative in terms of um, just how ordinary people, people who haven't been a part of uh, solidarity movements or protests or, you know, how do you see, um, uh, you know, the, the genocide in Palestine over the last six weeks um, affecting, you know, more, more mainstream narrative, uh, especially, you know, young folks. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, um, uh, Israel and its enablers being very upset at, platforms like TikTok and in Instagram, um, because young people who use those platforms are talking very openly and factually about uh, Zionism and about uh, what's happening in Palestine, what has been happening. Where do you see, where do you see the narrative going from here? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question, Nura. I think, um, you know, I, I believe that we have played, we as in the Palestine support movement in the United States, whether it's the members of the Palestinian community um, themselves, like like us and our our institutions, or you know the broader support movement, um, has done a lot of great work in, in this country over the years, and has moved some a, a number of institutions on these questions. Right, you know, he has a, a ton of anti-occupation 
strictly anti-67 occupation forces in this country for many, many years. And some of those forces are shifting and, and starting to talk about being anti-Zionist and have moved officially to becoming anti-Zionist. And also are the part, the narrative about settler colonialism and understanding the, you know, the narrative of liberation. I think that is what is happening. I think that is, is not only a, a fascinating development, but a very, very important one because people are talking about liberation now and they're talking about a settler colonialism and they're saying, wow, you know, this is, this is comparative to, you know, the anti-colonial struggles in, in Algeria, in Vietnam, in the Congo. And, um, you know, those connections are, are being made and not only by young people and not only by militant anti-imperialist students, but by, you know, broad swaths of the, of the community, I think, uh, of the, uh, of other communities as well. And I think th those are, that's a really, really important development. The other thing that happened, and, you know, I think, again, we did a really good job of, of this in, in our, in our movement is that, you know, the, the, the idea of the right to self-defense and the right to resistance, even the resistance that includes armed struggle, you know, the fact that like, you know, not only do people like us know that we have the internationally recognized right to do it by Geneva convention and two specific UN general assembly resolutions, but, um, that, you know, there was support for that as well. Understanding that if the, if the unified Palestinian resistance is not defending the Palestinian people and not defending them from the rabid, you know, racist settlers and the military and the police in the West Bank and Jerusalem, then who's going to do it? And how else would you defend yourself? You know, I remember vividly, and I'll just tell this, this last story here, uh, two separate meetings with two separate uh, legislators, Marie Newman, who actually lost her seat to the Sean Caston guy that we're going after. Um, and she was considered a progressive and, and she knew a lot of folks in our community. And she sat in front of us and said, I don't support the BDS movement. I have a lot of white American Jews in my in my constituency and they feel like it's a it's an existential threat to them. And so we sat in front of them and we sat in front of Daniel Biss, who was running for governor at one point and ended up uh, becoming the mayor of Evanston, a, a large suburb uh, on the outskirts of Chicago. And we asked them both the same exact question directly. Um, you told you you you. Uh, demanded that we put our arms down and don't uh, defend ourselves with armed struggle, right? You said, uh, be peaceful in your civil disobedience and in your movement, and that would get the support of the world, right? And then you, we establish a Palestinian-led, Palestinian-produced boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, and then you say you can't support that either, so Daniel Biss and Marie Newman, what are we supposed to do? You tell me what the Palestinian community in Palestine is supposed to do when you say, don't use armed struggle. And then also we're going to condemn your, your nonviolent struggle of BDS. And, and neither of them could, could answer, of course. Both of them took a, a full solid 40 seconds with, before they could, they could answer. And they said, I got no answer for you. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here in terms of like the narrative changing a little bit and that the, the role of the electronic intifada and our coalitions and our institutions like USPCN and others across the country that are really, really doing 
such a, a great job, in my opinion, of of uh, of moving the needle and changing that narrative. Thank you so much, Hatem. Um, before uh, we wrap up, um, I wanted to get uh, just you know maybe a go around of uh, what we can predict uh, what to look out for in the next couple of days. Uh, we will probably be doing a live stream on Monday, so, so we'll have obviously more information about the beginning of this um, very delicate and tentative uh, truce. Um, John, what should we be watching over the next uh, 24, 48 hours? Yeah, like I said, not to reiterate, but it's a dangerous time. These moments before the ceasefire are dangerous time. But I also think that this is an extraordinary, unprecedented moment where Israel has a lot, um, uh, needs to be part of this ceasefire. They need to free um, their people in a way that hasn't happened in previous conflicts. So I, I believe that the durability of this first stage, at least, um, should be in place. But um, it's a dangerous time and the, the it's dangerous to move around even under um, the ceasefire conditions. It's dangerous for the resistance to move around. The Israelis have violated these ceasefires in the past, of course. But again, I want to just caution uh, using history as an example, because I do believe that we're in an unprecedented moment. Um, and I think that the achievement of this first stage of the release is a historic achievement. And it's... I when I'm down in despair, I imagine the 12 year old kid who's been in jail for two years since he was 10, um, having the jailer open his cell and say that uh, the Palestinian resistance freed you from jail as their first priority. It's a, it's a remarkable historical achievement. And I, I hope that this first stage holds for, um, for, for the sacrifices that have been made by everybody to get to this stage. Yeah. Hatem, uh, what about you? What are you? Yeah, are I think, you, uh, I think John, what John mentioned uh, reminds me of, of, um, of, of uh, this, you know, what Lenin called the contradictions within the enemy camp, you know, and, um, and they're there for sure. Right. The, the families had been public and very loud in their uh, excoriation of Netanyahu and his defense minister. Um, I think, you know, you see some fissures, you know, we know like there's no significant peace movement, anti-occupation movement in, in Israel these days. Um, but you know, what those kinds of things can, can show some, uh, some fissures in the, in, in the camp of the enemy. And that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the, the fact that, um, Israel had to make these concessions. They were forced to make the concessions by the victories of the resistance and they were forced to make the concessions because they have some, you know, political contradictions that they have to, um, they have to deal with as well. So um, we don't trust Israel for one second. Um, they've been lying, you know, for 75 years, uh, especially have been lying in the last 45 days um, to the whole world. Um, and they've been exposed even even in main in corporate mainstream press for their lies. Um, they've they've um, they've gone again, they've reneged on a number of agreements, right? They were supposed to stop uh, settlement building in 1993 when the the glorious Oslo Accords were signed, right? Um, 
So, so we don't trust them for a second and the Palestinian people don't trust them and the resistance doesn't trust them. So I agree with John and with, uh, with everybody is that we have to be very, very, this is cautiously cautious optimism as we move forward. And the last thing I'll say is that there's still 150 captured Israelis and a number of them are high ranking military commanders, which means I see the possibility that it won't just be a one for three swap moving forward. It could be a one for five swap moving forward. And the resistance has been super principled. John mentioned it earlier. I think Nura did as well. The resistance has been super principled when they talked about prisoner exchanges in the past. And they've always put out the names of the top leaders of some of the top Palestinian resistance organizations. I don't suspect that the Ahmed Sadats of the world are going to get out. But I, I know that we're going we're, you know, we're, we're to be able to get um, more than a one for three swap moving forward. We have a lot of leverage right now as Palestinians and, and our, and our support movement, um, in Palestine and in the U S. And I think we should, uh, take advantage of it with cautious optimism as much as possible. Thanks Hatem and Ali, uh, your final yeah, remarks. I, I think that, uh, you know, there, there is, some of the feedback I'm seeing in, in the comments and uh, messages I'm getting are asking, you know, well, why would they make this deal when, uh, you know, the it seems Hatem says one to three, one to five, that remember that in the 2011 prisoner exchange, when Israel released thousand Palestinians for uh, one uh, Israeli soldier, and they're saying, well, now they're releasing 50 uh, Israelis for just 150. John points out that these are children whose lives are at stake. But again, I want to just point out that th these are people Hamas was saying uh, a few weeks ago, we just want to release them. We just want to, uh, to be able to organize their safe evacuation from Gaza. Uh, and we just need to be able to, we can't take them out under the bombing because it's too dangerous. So they were willing to give them back for, you know, quote unquote, for free. They weren't asking for anything. They weren't even asking for a quote unquote humanitarian ceasefire. They were just saying, we want enough of a ceasefire to be able to get them out. So it is because Israel refused that, that Israel had to pay any price at all. And I think the important thing that from the perspective of the resistance, what they see as truly valuable uh, is the Israeli military prisoners. And I assume the Israeli men who they consider to be in the same category, category given how near universal military service is. And they are not going to be released anytime soon and not for, uh, and, and when they are released, it will be uh, for a uh, considerably higher price, so to speak. Now, that said, I want to just emphasize that this, what's been announced is a four-day pause, but the Israelis have said they're open to an extension and the extent to which there's an extension, I think, is going to depend on continued pressure and continued protests from around the world. So 
that's the message I think that is so important for people to take away. Do not let up. As Hatim says, people are going to be in the street. People are in the streets today uh, around the country. They're going to be in the streets tomorrow. We have to keep the pressure up on all our representatives. And this is not just in the United States, because I know people here are watching around the world. They watch this, this program. We have to keep the pressure up. And that is the message that Ahmed Aburtema just gave us from Gaza as well. Do not relax. Do not let up. Because what happens is, uh, is to a large part dependent on us. Indeed. Uh, and with that, I want to thank uh, Hatim Abudaya uh, from the U.S. Palestinian Community Network. We'll definitely have you back on. Uh, good friend to all of us and, and a trusted and dedicated comrade. Um, and uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to highlight some of the comments that we had. Uh, a lot of love for Ahmed Abu Artema. Um, and uh, a lot of love for Hatim. Um, absolutely, we'll have him on more often. Um, there are uh, there were a lot of comments like this. People really thanking us for this program, and um, you know, just like cutting through the 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 fog of propaganda that everyone else is being shown. So we we really appreciate that. Um, protests in Barcelona. Uh, are apparently getting better. And uh, this one, thank you so much. So so I'm so proud to be part of this dream team. Um, and uh, if you want to help us keep this going, please do go uh, sign up for our mailing list at electronicintifada.net. Um, you will get email updates alerting you to the next live stream and all of the published content that we produce every day. Uh, we also have a scrolling updates log, which I uh, encourage people to go and bookmark right away. It's right there up at the top, updates. Um, you'll get a full scrollable log of every day, uh, the events of every day, and all of the things that we have published. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to show, if we go back to the front page, to the main page, uh, I just wanted to highlight we have this brand new story yes. by our colleague Asa Wynn Stanley, who's still traveling in case folks were wondering why he, he isn't uh, with us today. <laughs> and this, this is really an important story that we've been covering from the beginning. And what Asa has done is brought together um, all the evidence so far that a large number of the Israelis killed on October 7th were actually killed by Israeli forces. And he lays it out in a way that is just so uh, brilliant and so clear. And so I just want to draw attention to this. And uh, let's go back to the front page again, if we can, uh, and just highlight once again, if we scroll down, Tamara, thank you, uh, the uh, great coverage we have if we see Tamara, if you just go up for a second back up uh, the, the, the top story there that's by uh, Khalil Abu Shamala uh, just underneath Asa's story uh, who is in Gaza that's published today we also had uh, the piece we mentioned earlier from Ghada Abid that is published uh, today so we are still publishing 
uh, people in Gaza, writing from Gaza right now. Uh, some people are going to be having conversations around the Thanksgiving table about what's going on. So, you know, you've got the electronic intifada as a resource for that uh, uh, grumpy uh, MAGA uncle who uh, <laughs> is going to take Israel's side. So please share this. This is amazing. It's amazing that people in Gaza are still people who have been displaced multiple times, yeah. whose homes have been destroyed, but they are still insistent on speaking to the world and speak. And we are honored that the Electronic Intifada is a platform for them. So please, one of the best things you can do to support them and support us is to share these articles, send them to family, send them to friends post them on social media. And Tamara, if you just go way up to the top of the page again, Nora mentioned it, but I want to mention it again on the, the get updates there. Sign up for our mailing list because that's the best way to avoid the social media censorship and suppression is, is uh, they, they still can't take email away from us. It's uh, old fashioned, but it's reliable. So please <laughs> sign up. And then right in the middle there, you see that donate now button. All this work is funded by our readers and supporters. That's what allows us to do this work, to have these live streams, to, to be able to pay all our writers, to be able to support our writers and our colleagues in Gaza as well. This is how we do it. So please be part of it. And uh, thank you very much. And that's what I want to say. Thanks to everyone for the love and support. I, I haven't said it enough recently, but we are still getting a lot of messages. Our inboxes are still full and we love you and we appreciate all the support and we will, one day we'll get back to you. We'll yep. answer your emails. We will. I swear we will. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ali. Uh, on behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, John and Tamara behind the scenes, as always, are um, just incredible talented producer behind the scenes tomorrow. Thank you so much, Hatim. Uh, and all of us at EI, thank you. Um, be safe, and we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thank